So on today's episode of Femcast, I'm really excited to have be doing a joint uh, podcast with our friends over at Wemcast. And uh, this topic is definitely one that I do not have any experience in. So we've wrote these guys in to go through the considerations for jungle medicine. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So my name is Sean Hudson. Uh, primarily, I'm a GP in the north of England, uh, but I've done a lot of expeditions in the jungle environment. And for the last four or five years, I've done a med cover for the military for a number of exercises twice a year. So I think I've been there six times to Brunei and to Belize. Okay, uh, my name's Matthew Bolter. Uh, likewise, I'm a GP, but I'm a GP in the country, right down in the southwest of England in West Cornwall. Um, but in a similar vein, I'm also a military GP and I have been for over th- over 30 years now. Uh, and again, in a similar vein, over the last sort of 10 or 12 years, I've covered uh, major jungle exercises uh, in Borneo for the military. So once, twice a year and uh, have developed quite a, a bit of a, a niche nerdy expertise in uh, all things jungle medical. And my name's Owen Walker. I'm a critical care paramedic uh, and a paramedic of 20 years. And I first started my jungle experience in 2006 um, and then 2007 for a number of expeditions. And then I've been in Costa Rica teaching the World Extreme Medicine Jungle course since 2012. Fab, thank you. So clearly there's a huge amount of expertise around the virtual table. Um, First of all, guys, can you just give us an idea about what it's like in the jungle and why that presents a challenge when we're looking after patients and people who are there. Hot, hot, hot and hot. I think so uh, it's, I think... <laughs> <laughs> Go on, go on, man. I'll say it's something it depends. Uh, yeah, heat is a heat and humidity are significant factors. So it just makes uh, living and existing uh, yourself just as a medic looking after yourself is hard work and just living in that environment let alone having to try and do a professional job as a clinician um, but one of the significant factors it depends how remote you are but if you're doing proper remote jungle medicine where you may be days and days walk from a road uh, your Kazivac time and your Kazivac implications are significant it is not an easy thing to Kazivac someone out of a jungle um, and you're pretty helicopter reliant and that isn't as oh great here comes a helicopter easy as it sounds it's fraught with difficulty and the Kazivac is a very careful card to play because uh, you can you know create more dramas than you originally intended by sitting on someone for maybe longer so I think experience counts in that environment and I certainly um, what colleagues have seen, but you know, the, the less experienced clinicians in the jungle may panic too early and Kazivac too early for something that perhaps didn't need it. And uh, the, the Kazivac burden is, is significant if you're very remote. Okay, so Sean, when we're thinking about uh, the sorts of problems you might face uh, when you're looking after people in the jungle, how would you categorize them and break them down and then we'll explore each one? So I think uh, as you practice medicine in any country, you've got your standard primary health care and your standard trauma. But in addition to that, you've got some quite significant environmental issues, whether that's related to heat injuries. Uh, And then that, of course, is made worse by the fact that it's a horribly humid environment. And then you've got the fauna and flora. And on top of that, you've got all the endemic diseases. It's probably the most complex environment, I'd suggest, in which to function as a medical professional. It's challenging not from not just from a medical perspective, but it's pretty challenging as well from a just a surviving and managing and processing yourself, never mind then delivering a professional job when you're trying to look after other people just on a day-to-day basis. So I think it you know, we use it certainly in the military as as our sort of primary testing ground. If you can function in that environment either as a soldier or as a medic, you're pretty much competent to go to most environments and be reasonably comfortable. Okay, so let's think about the um, jungle-borne diseases then. Owen, do you want to go through the sorts of things that you might see? 
Absolutely. Thanks, Claire. Yeah. So it's prudent in any jungle environment, I think, to to understand the prevailing uh, epidemiology of disease. And so in the majority of, of cases, uh, mosquitoes will play uh, a large part. So it's prudent to know whether it's a malaria uh, ridden or born area and and then um, then it's prudent to to then take prophylaxis if you are going into a, a malaria area fortunately in the, the Costa Rican jungle uh, malaria isn't prevalent anymore but there is other um, other mosquito-borne diseases such as dengue uh, and, and Zika but so you've you really have to have a good uh, idea of what the uh, prevalence um, prevalent disease diseases but it's also not necessarily just around about the mosquitoes so as sean alluded to and matt it's it's really around the prevalence of common things occur commonly such as heat illness uh, one of the biggest sort of testing grounds as sean was saying is that actually um there's um prevailing humidity in these environments and it's it's not direct sunlight but it's the humidity that really catches people out so um in a sort of a, an unacclimatized uh candidate or participant to the to the jungle environment um the, what, what the most common pathology we see is is around heat illness and that could be heat exhaustion all all the way through the spectrum so it's understanding that common things occur commonly but then you've got the you've got the the, the bites, the stings, you've got the snakes, the, the, the spiders, um, you have, um, you, you have just the, like Sean was saying, the forest and the fauna. So you have the flora, the, the, the environment itself, you can have, um, some really difficult terrain just to navigate through, um, which might be, which might have in itself, uh, plants, which might, which might cut the skin quite easily. Um, and so it's prudent just to be, to be, to be situationally aware, but the main category, would be would be the the fauna which is the animal life the flora which is the plant life um, and then the environment itself which is the which is the humidity and to mitigate all three or have a good good idea of all three so you've got uh, mitigation strategies i've got to say owen i think you're right to some degree you can have a perfect storm where these things can link together so if you if it's hot and sweaty and you're really struggling with exerting yourself in that environment if you then get a fever on top of that physiologically you start to crumble quite quickly so i think you know clay was saying about you know mosquito-borne diseases if you, so if you get a, a febrile illness that's insect-borne or whatever born um it's highly likely to put you out of daily physical activity and you may well be a cardiovascular candidate and it's clearly it's pretty difficult to know what exactly that febrile illness is uh, if it's a tropical febrile illness um but if you're doing some sort of trekking or movement type activity, that individual is be highly likely to carry on. It's just just too much uh, physiological overload when you're trying to cope with the with it with the, the heat, the humidity, and physical activity all at once. I think the um... okay. So I think it would be really good to go on. I was going to say I think I think it's interesting that we we always get or people often get concerned about the endemic diseases that they're going to come across, but your diagnostic diagnostic capabilities is so poor for the majority of um, of these expeditions that your your um, your differential diagnosis is really quite small, and you treat the things that are most commonly present as a fever. Um, I don't see a lot of a lot of issues. Uh, on expeditions with the endemic disease in the jungle, predominantly, what we see is a general sort of degradation of the of the human anatomy. You know, the person physiologically and anatomically just starts to decay. It's uh, you know, it's a hot, humid, uh, dirty, um, strenuous environment to be in. And then, uh, and the other thing is is the the impact of heat and humidity on the physiology. So. You know, I don't, I'm sure Matt will say the same, but the majority of things that we have to deal with on protracted military exercises are, are heat-related illness and just sort of general body deterioration. Uh, and then, you know, the, 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 the simple infections that you get as a result of that. Would you agree, Matt? I would. Uh, I think, uh, I guess we should, we should probably discuss heat because we keep circling around it and it is, it does predominate, um, um, you can have you know, humidities regularly in a jungle day in the high 90s, temperatures in the 30s. Uh, there is very, very little air movement in the jungle canopy. Um, so it's just hot and sticky. 
Um, uh, there's little solar radiation directly, as uh, Owen said, because you're, you're covered. But if you do go out into a clearing, boy, you know about it. But it's that it's that radiant heat and ambient heat in the environment, um, and and you, it's it's very difficult to sweat, uh, and your clothes become very soaked very quickly. Your clothes start to rot on you, and everyone has a jungle smell after about twelve hours that just doesn't go away, and and kit will will rot on you. Um, so yeah, the heat is. Uh, is all encompassing. We we try and acclimatize uh, the military guys, and we're doing a lot of work on looking at acclimatization with the Institute of Naval Medicine and doing various regimes to improve that. And can you make it more quick, uh, more rapid, rather accelerated acclimatization? But um, when you're in country, um, you need to acclimatize in the climate you're in, in the microclimate you're in. So if you do go to Borneo and you're at beach level for a while. Uh, you can get nice and hot, um, but it's nothing. It's a very different microclimate for when you then deploy up under the tree canopy where it's hot. You have to sort of start your acclimatization again. Um, and to fully acclimatize, you know, you're looking at a couple of weeks, really. And in many environments, depending on what you're doing, unless you're on a very protracted uh, task or expedition or trekking thing, you're just not going to have time to acclimatize to that microclimate. So you, it's highly likely that clinicians looking after that body of people are going, are going to see exertional heat illness, which is the, the sort of the, the catch-all term for piling in when you when you're when you're walking around the jungle and it's really hot. So EHI is the, is, is the buzzword that uh, sort of co- covers it all. Really, that whole spectrum from feeling a bit hot and sweaty through. You know, you know, heat stroke to you know, sort of single figure GCS, and it can happen really quite quickly. And it's uh, we, we see it a lot. Okay, so can I get you to describe that um, in a bit more detail? Then, so what is the spectrum, and how would a patient or a person initially kind of start to show warning signs? What are you looking out for in the group of people you're 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 responsible for in terms of? seeing the early signs and then is there anything you can do at that point to stop it getting any worse i think the um uh, early signs uh if you're doing some physically it's in, in some ways it's quite like hypothermia in a bizarre way at the other end of the, it sort of presents very similarly people perhaps will uh, if you are trekking walking will be lagging at the back and struggling and stumbling because they are uh they are you know, not coping with the physical exertion in the heat. Um, things can come on actually really quite quickly. Uh, if people, certainly some of the military guys are under quite pressure to keep up with the course. Uh, so there's a bit of an adrenaline rush keeps them going. Uh, and it's not at all uncommon um, for them to stop for, for a, a brief pause or a rest. And then they just suddenly pile in because the adrenaline sort of um, lowers. Um, so it, it, it's going to be a you know, stumbling, confusion, uh, unsteadiness, um, incontinence is quite common, um, you, uh, both urinary and fecal, and particularly, and particularly urinary. People just find they've wet themselves because they're starting to have sort of neurological sequelae. Um, it's the, the we are keen to do certainly in the military environment if we can. Uh, it's difficult, but we'd like really like to look at some sort of points of collapse um, blood testing to realise strong help further validate what is going on physiologically. Clearly, it's multifactorial but it will be really good to know what is going on. Uh, but when you certainly get in that, um, in a, an EHI, EHI patient, exertional illness, it's an exertional heat injury or heat illness patient, uh, you, you develop a hypermetabolic state. Um, and if you do a blood glucose on someone, it's, you know, down at so, you know, two or so, even though they've eaten well that day, you just become hypermetabolic and consume all your circulating glucose. So that can have a factor as well. Um, hydration can be a part. Um, there's often a lot, you know, the jungle tends to be a wet place, so access to water is quite common, but, and we all sweat differently and we, we release different amounts of salt in our sweat. Um, but, you know, dehydration, you know, certainly can have an element too, but it's definitely multifactorial and it presents with this stumbling, confused, um, dazed, difficult to answer questions, lagging behind the group, fall over, collapse, wet themselves, continents um start to have seizures lose consciousness and you can yeah you can have people at you know quite significant single figure gcs's really that, that are fitting on you uh, and you may be 
you know, several hours away from or an hour or two away from a, from a hospital by helicopter if the helicopter can fly and they can't always because of the sort of uh, some of the thermal injury uh, issues around flying over a wet jungle. So it's quite scary when you see someone collapse in that state um, about how you're going to manage them when you've probably, you, you, it's not the finish line of the London Marathon when you've got ice baths and fans, you've probably got literally the kit on your back. So managing that patient becomes you know, really quite challenging. So can I just come in there, Matt? So I, I agree that Great, the... thank you. And so what... Yeah, please do. Sorry. I would say the, the analogy with, um, with uh, hypothermia is interesting because I'd agree completely that they, they present in, like a uh, moderately hypothermic casualty in that they've got that sort of stumbles, fumbles, mumbles and grumbles. But they go so much more rapidly from that state to really significantly unwell sudden deterioration and that's really rapid you know so guys will come in uh, and their venous return will reduce and they'll collapse and they fit and their fits tend to be they tend to be really short-lived they tend to be probably as the result of hypoxia so poor venous return poor uh, reduced blood volume hypoxic episode fit elevate their legs and they tend to regain consciousness again and stop fitting I think the the recovery as well from hypothermic, uh, so exertional heat injury, can be much quicker. So, you know, I, I think it's rare. I can't remember, in fact, the last time I saw somebody who was really unwell. And I've seen a lot of people collapse with heat injury and fit. But it's been a long time since I've seen somebody who hasn't recovered with really simple, you know, um, uh, cooling intervention. And it doesn't need to be uh, aggressive or complex it just, you know, we we've we've nailed it down to a one pound fifty um, plant spray from the local shop and a fan, which is a piece of plastic, and generally that will reduce somebody's core temperature really quite rapidly. Um, so it doesn't need to be, um, you know, a, a gurney with with ice and rapid cooling. Um, you spray some, you strip them naked, spray them, and and fan them. You can find that that's almost as as uh, as much as you need. Would you agree? Yeah, I would. Uh, we have this sort of like um, quadruple quadruple SF, so SSSF. So stop what they're doing, put them in the shade, strip them down, soak them, and then fan them. And the people who are doing the fanning should be exerting themselves almost as much as the camp as the as the uh, casualty was. You fan and fan and fan all of you as a team around that person. Um, you know, like uh, like your know, head downhill, um, and if you do that well enough, it's simple and it's quite old school, but it's all you've got. Um, I've yet to know a casualty that we've not significantly enough improved to get them back on their feet. Um, it's um, it's basic, but it's all you've got. Um, and to date, in the dozens of casualties I've seen, we've, we've managed to get them all back with um, you know, aggressive fanning. And as Sean says, you just spray them and spray them and spray them and soak them. Um, people do start putting IV lines in, uh, but to be honest, we've never got to, to that point. We've managed to get them around sooner. And these are people who are sort of, you know, fitting unconscious, eyes rolling in the head, you know, really you know, doubly incontinent uh, in a bad way. I guess we should rewind a bit and say prevention is better. I think the original question there was, you know, how can you spot these people? And some people, it would seem, are more susceptible than others. So certainly the military, we have um, uh, return attendees who, you know, who collapsed, thought to be a heat illness, not sure, come back. And some people just can't cope as well in that environment. There's a genetic thing there. And I guess it's a bit like AMS. Some people do, some people don't. Uh, complex area, way beyond my level of genetic understanding. But there is a... Uh, a genetic element, I'm sure. Physical fitness will help. If you're more physically robust, you will be uh, less likely to go under because you can cope with the exertional side of the healness. Um, um, but I think what one of the things that people often talk about is taking temperatures. Um, so we've done a lot of work on temperature taking and people talk about core temperature. Um, actually, to measure a core temperature, it's a proper deep sort of 10 centimeter long rectal thermometer um, to do to measure your core temperature properly, and in essence, you know, no one is going to take that into the jungle unless you're doing proper scientific research. Um, so, uh, 
people uh, use sublingual thermometers, you know, sort of the baby armpit thermometers, um, rectally, but it's not rectally. It's probably more like anally. Uh, as, an, as an attempt uh, to replicate core temperature. But I think it's not actually, you're more likely measuring anal temperature. But um, personally, I just use tim, Timpanic. Um, you need a, t- a tympanometer that's quite um, robust in that environment. Uh, but it's it's quite routine. So we've done a whole lot of work looking at people who, who haven't collapsed or fitting well and you know exerting themselves. And if you just go around and take 50 people and take all their temperatures, you'll have people there with temperatures over 40 who are stood there looking at you saying, what's your problem? Um, so we find testing temperature uh, not, surprisingly, I think, not a very reliable indicator of is someone going to go down uh, with heat illness. I think respiratory rate is a far more early sign. Um, people have you know, respiratory rates, you know, pumping out. So when they when they collapse, we have a, we have a set regime where we measure a simple set of OBS, uh, pulse, spiritual rate, conscious level, and temperature. And we've got a, a mechanism now, in fact, it got published in the Journal of the RMC of how we then assess that. So you measure them at the point of collapse, initiate your treatment, and then measure them again at the 30-minute point. And it's uh, it's scored in a bit like a GCS, but in a more simple way. Uh, and if your score has improved significantly, uh, you're deemed fit to carry on at, at risk. Uh, but if you if there's no if you've not significantly improved on your on your numbers by the thirty minute point, we tend to say you know enough's enough. If we push this person anymore, this is going to get worse and more serious. But I think yeah, but key key message: temperature is a a poor a poor indicator of a degree of severity of EHI. What it's quite good at though is it gives you a trend. So it's, it's certainly, I wouldn't say let's not do it, because I'd agree yeah. entirely as an absolute uh, reading. It's, it's virtually, you know, useless. But what it does do is it tells you, you know, is, how is, how, what's, what's happening when we're cooling somebody? Is their core temperature coming down and how rapidly? And as long as, you do, if, as long as you're measuring the temperature in the same way, you're getting an idea of how quickly you're cooling them. Um, so I still think it's a, it's, you know, yeah, exactly. to it's it. a good indicator. However you yeah. do it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. The, the beach physiology that you were doing with the Institute of Naval Medicine in Borneo, I think that was fascinating because we always used to think, I mean, the old school was that you had um, heat exhaustion and heat stroke and they were, a, they were a spectrum and it was defined by what your core temperature was. But I think we, when Matt and I and M were doing the, the research piece on core temperatures with um, uh, swallowable uh, thermometers, and then the cooling impact of, because we used to run the guys down the beach and then they would get in the sea and they would theoretically cool down, they'd get out and then they'd run on again. And you were discovering that guys were standing up and functioning perfectly normally with core temperatures off the scale and they're actually getting into the sea and theoretically cooling down. But all they were doing was telling their their peripheral thermoreceptors that, oh, that feels nice and cool, but not actually making any difference to their core temperature. Is that right? Yeah, cold, cold water motion is, and there are there are jungle rivers, and it is an option. Uh, and if you've got one nearby, it's not a bad idea. But clearly, you need to do it with care um, to protect the airway and all that sort of thing. For obvious reason, it's a good way of cooling someone down. But you probably need several people holding that person about, particularly if they're fitting and thrashing and uh, semi-compliant. So um, we do do it sometimes, but it's sod's law. There's never a river there when you want one. My my daughter did explain to me. Uh, last year, it's all physics, Dad, and it was down to it's down to latent heat. So you you need to change your H two O to a different state, and the closer you are to that state, then the more energy it's required. So theoretically, I think that's what she said. I wasn't really listening. So if you if you got droplets, it's going to go into a gas form much quicker. And if we put somebody into into cold water or cool water, we're not going to re- we're not going to change its state. So. We were looking, uh, after a discussion with I&M, we were looking at using some sort of slush bath in, in our jungle camp. So we have a couple of fixed locations that we tend to see uh, our casualties. So we were looking at taking out sort of slush in a, some sort of cooling box and use that for the, the guys who are significantly unwell. But the spray works so well that, to be honest, they'd have to be really sick for me to, to go down that route. We've also tried these things that you may have seen called care vests, C-A-E-R, and there may be other uh, other ones available, which is like a, 
an anterior waistcoat, looks like a bulletproof vest, but you just wear it across your torso. Uh, and if you pour fluid into it, there's a it sets up a chemical reaction. It, the thing becomes a cooling vest, and it has um, extension pieces down into the groin and up around the neck. And it's been used very successfully, um, I think, in more benign environments, London Marathon, I know that they've used it there in various sort of sports events. And it really does assist with the cooling, um, which is great. Um, but by necessity, they are quite big and bulky, and it you, means you've got to carry these things around with you. And if you as the medic are carrying your kit on your back, um, you've got to be quite limited or get other people to carry these things around. Um, and we, we've certainly found that, and we've used them in the UK, and you crack one of these things off, and they'll stay cold for two, three, four hours, and they'll still be cold to the touch. Whereas you do them in that environment, after 30, 40 minutes, they're, they're done, they've done their job. I'm not saying they don't work, but if you've got them, great. So if you're in a fixed location, you can get those, those sort of slush jackets or whatever you've got, uh, it will help. But Sotador, yeah, the, the casualty will, will collapse at the most distant point. Uh, from where from where your med kit is, and away you go. Yeah, I was just thinking those like like those wine cooling jackets. That's the kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, but exactly. yeah, yeah. They they do not cool my wine sufficiently, so I can see why it wouldn't work on a person. Uh, you're so <laughs> metropolitan, honestly. Tricky. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I'm just asking the questions. Gentlemen. I only use it on my champagne <laughs> these days. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, so I think that is a really nice summary of the kind of heat issues and how you would manage them. So am I right in thinking then that actually you don't really kind of worry too much about whether or not it could be a jungle born disease that gives you a fever or heat illness because the management is the same? I was going to say you're pretty, we're pretty empirical with, you know, you, you have an idea of what the endemic diseases or the common endemic diseases are and the, and the jungle environment that you're going to go to. And there are numerous places that you can you can look that up. I mean, whether that's Travax or Nathnak, you can get an understanding of the diseases before you go. And then there are some uh, rapid diagnostic test kits, test kits which are available for certain diseases, and they're pretty good. But they're few and far between. And so you're limited, and you're really going back to... Um, your clinical skills, uh, which most of us haven't, don't tend to practice because we're so reliant on investigations and, and investigations. So I tend to have a list of what are the most common endemic diseases that I'm going to come across that will cause a fever and make people unwell. Uh, what are the um, incubation periods for those and what are, the, what are the principal presenting clinical features that they might have that would point you towards it just being right that is dengue or that is malaria or that's chikungunya or you know whatever the endemic diseases might be and then i tend not to keep anybody you know if anyone is so significantly unwell with an endemic disease the chances are i'm going to treat them and then try and move them on to somewhere else where i can actually get a better picture of what exactly is going on with them and so you probably like most, like you know, it doesn't matter whether you're on an expedition or whether you're working in a remote clinic. You treat the things that you think are going to kill the individual the quickest, which are the most likely things that they have, and you work down that list. Um, so you might be giving uh, IV antibiotics, plus or minus um, artemisinin, and plus or minus quinine, or you know whatever you feel is the most appropriate treatment. So it is a, a bit of a broader brush, to be honest, when you're working in these remote environments, especially in the jungle. Thanks, Sean. And as an associated question, what about the like diarrhea and vomiting type illnesses? Presumably, you know, the likelihood of getting one of those while you're in these environments is a bit higher than in normal life. Um, do you come across those sorts of conditions that are going to need you to be rehydrating the casualties? Yeah, so I was just going to say, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things you have to bear in mind is that traveler's diarrhea is common. So I think in, in these environments, it's you've almost got to anticipate that uh, you will have a spell of uh, diarrhea. And this becomes, it becomes a lot more relevant if you're taking medication because you're not going to be necessarily absorbing that medication uh, properly. And preferentially, you're going to, you're going to also be quite dehydrated in a hot environment. So it does put you at a, a physiological disadvantage uh, and it can uh, cause a lot of lethargy 
uh, a lot of acute lethargy. And also just from a from a sort of a, a, a social perspective, people aren't going to want to come forward and tell you they've got diarrhea, especially if it's not self-limiting, which is which is uh, interesting because if if people aren't necessarily coming forward and they are taking medication then it really is reliant on you being an anthropologist. So you've got to watch these people. You've got to watch the group um, because, as Matt was saying, people can actually um, quite quickly become uh, subject to heat illness. Um, and it, and it, can, it can come on very quickly. And, and interestingly, from my experience, from some of the most fit members in the group, if they start to become acutely lethargic and, and or migrate to the back of the group, that's when that's the point. That's the time to intervene. And so it, there's, a, there's a lack of absorption uh, of both food and and or medication. Um, there's, there's they're going to be dehydrated from the weather already. And so what, what we say is if, if it's not self-limiting to 24 hours, that's probably the time to start looking at medication, antidiarrheals, uh, starting to, or at least starting to take um, electrolytes, so or rehydration salts, and start to supplement. So you're ahead of the curve, especially if you're doing a lot of acute exercise. And it also lends itself to this situation awareness, which I'm sure we'll get onto shortly. I think it, the other, it's a slight misconception, to be honest, that you see loads of diarrhea and vomiting in a jungle environment. So if you're in contact with the local population, of course, you know, any fecal oral disease is going to spread. Um, and if you're not following sort of your standard public health advice, you'll catch something. But actually, when you're on, a, if you're on an expedition or an exercise and you're a closed group and you are you know, in the jungle, diarrhea and vomiting is actually really uncommon um, because you've got to pick up the endemic disease okay. and it's fecal oral, so you don't actually come across it that often. Mm -hmm. But if you're on a short trip mm -hmm. uh, or you're in contact with local population, you know, you will come across it. Um, you tend to treat it more aggressively earlier just simply because you don't want somebody, they can't function. If they're stopping 15 times a day or 20 times a day to go to the toilet, they can't function and they're getting dehydrated and they run the risk of, of exertional heat injury. So I would tend to be slightly more aggressive with these individuals and, and assume, I mean, most travelers' diarrheas, 85% of them are bacterial anyway. So I tend to go early with antibiotics uh, unless you know we were able to be in a, in a camp and I could isolate them and they could be near a toilet. Um, so I don't actually see traveller's diarrhoea actually that often, except when we are in contact with the local population. I think well, the other thing to say is that, again, prevention is better than cure and think about your food sources, food storage um, and water sourcing, uh, which needs part, you know, whatever food you're going to survive, I need some careful thinking and, you know, washing your cooking utensils and cutlery and that sort of thing, because it's a dirty environment and bugs will grow fast. So uh, it, it's it's basics, but if you've got a group who are jungle naive, um, it's something that perhaps as the public health expert in the room is the only clinician on the expedition that's going to fall to you to make sure that those those simple things are being done well and people aren't cutting corners and not washing up properly of whatever the cooking utensils are and you know, drinking appropriately purified water with whatever mechanism or mechanisms you've got to clean your water. Otherwise, you're going to see a lot more of it. And certainly in the military environment, we get at huge lengths um, to, you know, protect our food sources and purify water. Yeah, thanks, Matt. That's an excellent point. I guess we're talking about uh, different people having different experiences in terms of how much they can contribute to the advanced planning of the expedition. And that came up in our Altitude podcast as well with those with those guys in terms of as the medic you know you're often the person who has to deal with the consequences if, if the planning wasn't great uh, so we kind of brushed over earlier the uh, issues around skin and the impact that the jungle environment can have on skin and Matt is particularly keen to share his thoughts on this subject I think uh, only because it's of huge clinical relevance and not a personal uh, clinical interest of my own. But <laughs> from going from uh, to heat to feet and conveniently it rhymes. So heat and uh, you, 
the, the environment is so damp um, that you know, pe- people in this environment, you wear jungle boots, um, which have holes in to let the water come out. You, you know, because you will be walking through water, you are wet, your socks are wet, your feet are wet all the time. So you have wet feet. So the ability to dry your feet out at the end of the day and good foot admin, as they would call it in the military, and put you know, fungated talc on your feet and that sort of really looking after your feet and blisters and all that sort of good foot management is absolutely key because you're going to degrade whatever activity the group are doing if people just can't walk anymore because their feet are in such poor state. Um, and it may well be that if you're doing a trekking thing, people are uh, it's new boots for them and they've not really tested them out in that environment and they're you know, they're they're uh, unfamiliar footwear and they're going to cause you know, hot spots and rubs and blisters and you're going to really struggle to get the you know, blisters to heal and any skin break is at risk of infection in that environment because it's generally a dirty environment, dirty water in your boots. So I think looking after feet is common and we see quite a lot of pitted keratolitis, um, which is a sort of characteristic thing where it's, um, it's a bacterial infection and you see lots of sort of punctate lesions in the soles of the skin and your feet really smell. Um, and it's sort of it's it's trench foot type stuff really because you you just can't dry out your feet, so you know foot admin talc socks um, is you know it, it sounds mundane but in terms of keeping the job going and keeping people on the task the trek the exercise the expedition um, it, it, it's vital really. Yeah, I would agree with uh, Matt actually. So uh, we were in Fiji in 2019 and we saw a lot of pitted. Uh, 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 keratolysis and it was really around keeping your feet like like Matt was saying dry keeping them um, whenever whenever there's a chance to rest getting uh, the socks off when when you're sleeping or indeed resting it's just getting the the air around the feet and um, early topical antibiotics uh, if if necessary if it's starting to go down that way but it, the foot admin is absolutely key because it can be the absolute rate limiting step to the rest of the to the rest of the trip um and so it's it is prevailing a bacterial infection uh, but you've also got to be aware, aware of fungal infections because those can those can take hold but it's it really is uh, it's it's giving your feet the best chance by every time you 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 stop just airing them making sure you've got as many clean socks as possible and it, it, the the real concept as well is having wet kit in the day when it's when when you're when you're hiking or tramping or, or racing and and it's dry kit at night so you're always stepping into dry kit when you're when you're sleeping so you're not in your wet kit when you're in in your in your basher or in your hammock or tent that you've 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 got a dry dry kit to, to step into just just try and to try and sort of stave off the, the the bacterial infections absolutely i think yeah it's, so, you know, it's boot, boot and sock free or shoe free time essentially i say let your let your feet air and certainly a part of my daily routine is at the end of the working day you're going to have your, your wash in the jungle river and then just sit with my feet you know my feet dried and talked and let them sort of try and try and recover a little. Uh, people take tubs of talc, or what's quite common as well is take a, a, a quite robust polythene bag with talc in it, and you put your foot in the bag, give it a good shake. Uh, works quite well, so you're not dropping talc everywhere. But if you've got a sort of a, an evening routine, uh, bearing in mind it's very dark in the jungle and you can't do much when it does go dark, but if you are moving around, uh, flip-flops probably aren't ideal to walk around the jungle. There's far too many things will come and bite you. So you end up having to wear some sort of enclosed footwear again just to you know do your cooking do whatever you're doing in the evening so yeah getting that that um air air time and sort of you know you know sock free time for your fees essential another top tip really is if you if people have got pitted keratolitis um if you can manage if you've got the wherewithal to do it and you you can uh, rustle up some sort of bowl um, and you can make bowls out of a, a curled up sand splint um, and a bit of water and a polythene in the middle to make yourself a, a makeshift bowl a bit, a bit of betadine only a few drops and soak and soak your feet in betadine uh, betadine water or potassium pangonate crystals you can get a, you can still buy those just to sort of uh, try and disinfect your feet and do that twice a day and lots of medicated talc and uh, you can turn it around quite quickly but it, it's you're always going to fight the tide on something like this in the jungle environment much easier when you've recovered out back to civilization air conditioning but it, it is a common problem as uh, you know Owen rightly says it, it it just disables people if you can't walk literally 
And I think you get that candle and into Trigo. I'm just listening to that and thinking, hmm, the evening stream wash. Are you going to catch any uh, bugs in there, any leeches and that kind of stuff? I was going to say, there's not a huge amount in the water that's going to cause you any problems. There are leeches there and people do have a bit of a panic. You know, they, they as Matt was about to say, they do get absolutely everywhere. My son had one in his belly button in Brunei, but I picked one off someone's conjunctiva before. They had an utter panic attack first thing in the morning when a, a leech had attached itself to their, to their globe. But they get in, they absolutely get everywhere. They are pervasive little monsters. But otherwise, in the water, there's very little that's going to cause you any problems. There, are, there, there was a, a spectacular uh, reticulated python at the washdown point that we used at the last camp, which was huge, which I was, there was no way I was getting in that water with that monster in there. It must have been about 20 foot long until the I-band chopped it up. There's, there's a big panic about leeches. And I know when I get them, I squeal like a girl and scratch them off the fingernail and do all the bad things. Um, but they are common. And I think it's some of education for the group and showing them what leeches are and the correct way to manage them and not to panic. And actually, these are the, you know, the more acceptable ways of taking them off, which creates less bleeding. Um, but yeah, inevitably, just everyone admit that you know, you're, you're highly likely all of us are going to get a few leeches on us during the course of whatever we're doing here. And you know, let's try and not panic when we do and help each other out and look at each other. Because yeah, they're often you're climbing out of a stream and they're on the back of your leg and you can't see it yourself. So it is a bit of teamwork and getting them off each other and uh, sort of familiarization with them really. And it actually, they're not a huge problem um, if correctly managed, although they do clearly leave a wound, um, which in that environment is at risk of infection. So it does need a bit of a clean. You used to, I think you can still get little betadine pots that are like nail varnish uh, and you can sit down at the end of the day and almost clean yourself up, find on your wounds and give them a blob of betadine or spray a betadine spray to try and prevent uh, open wounds getting infected. But yeah, so leeches are fun. And yeah, there are other forms. When you when you do take that end of end of day dip in the stream, there's jungle crocodiles as well. Also turtles and fish and all sorts of pleasant things. But yeah, quite a few things there to bite you. Don't go swimming on your own. Wow. I'm excited at the prospect of a jungle <laughs> expedition already. Uh, so thanks, gents. That's been really interesting to hear about all the different challenges that this type of expedition might present to us as a medic. Can I ask you a bit about, you know, how do you plan for these um, events? How do you prepare? Um, and what sort of would your top tips be? What have you learned from your experiences? I think we're going to go to Owen for this one. Yeah, thanks, Claire. So the old adage of sort of if you're going to chop a tree down, take four hours to sharpen the the axe is is true. It's it, it really is all in the preparation. So a couple of things I've learned really from uh, from the planning phases. Just make sure that the actual Kazavat plan works um so just that you have a plan a and plan b so you prepare for failure of plan a um that you know that you know uh, as to Matt, matt's point before around if you can't get a helicopter in to a triple canopy location that's you're you're aware of that so you you've got to, got to make sure you you know what what will work and what won't um you've got to make sure that the numbers you're going to use the emergency numbers actually have someone on the other end of the phone so call the numbers prior to prior to um when you actually need them be prepared for comms failures so two is one and one is none have a second comms device um ready for ready for for use um be uh, just be uh, mindful that you're actually at some point going to hand over to the indigenous medical provider so actually if if you don't speak spanish or if you don't speak portuguese or or the someone in your group does because actually when you come to point of handover or integration to the indigenous medical services you you're going to need to be able to communicate so just think through those points as well um just know as well from a situational awareness perspective that a lot of these things as Matt was saying earlier, happen either in the darkness or indeed probably um, quite quite a reasonable amount away from base camp. So having a predefined plan of 
of where the temporary stretcher is, which comms device you're going to use, making sure that the numbers work, making sure that you've, you know who in your party will potentially Kazovac, um the patient. Um, from experience, from previous Kazovacs, uh, 10, 15 years ago, I've had a number actually within the Costa Rican jungle and, uh, and in the, um, in the jungle in Honduras, you, you need more people than you think you do. We took four people with us in Honduras 15 years ago when we had to count Kazovac someone with a complex commutated fracture of his uh, tib fib. Uh, we took four people with us and it wasn't enough. The, as Matt was saying before and Sean was saying, these, these environments are absolutely exhausting with almost 100% humidity. And actually one of the team went down with, uh, with heat illness as a consequence of a six-hour Kazivak back to base camp. So you just... Carrying someone for six hours is absolutely exhausting. You know, you can lose situation awareness from a rescuer's perspective. You can get the amygdala hijack, so you forget to drink or take or, or take rests. So it, it really can be a, 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 a massive challenge. So it, it really is. Take more people than you think you'll need. Be aware of the of the systems and processes that you're going to use. Test them before you use them. So ring the numbers, tell people, find out, make sure that the chain of the chain of uh, of command or indeed of of linkage works uh, works well, and and just be prepared for worst case scenario. So when it rains in a, in a jungle environment, the terrain gets incrementally more difficult to to manage. So just be prepared for that. Be prepared that there is going to be um, a, a a a more uh, dangerous time to 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 operate in the jungle and that's often in darkness uh, because you can't see the snakes you can't see the trenches you can't see the things that bite or, or that sting so um, just be just brief the team and also just be prepared for the worst case scenario so it really is about that prior preparation um and and just and also knowing where your kit is knowing where your EpiPen is knowing how much adrenaline you've got no making sure that the whole team know where the where the emergency um where the emergency kit and the emergency medication is so having that situational awareness amongst the team having a good brief before you get into the jungle environment look guys these this is where we're going this is this is going to be the the, the rate limiting steps. Um, you were actually going to travel a lot less further on the map than you think we will because the terrain, although it might look fine, is absolutely undulating. And if it rains, we, we know it's going to become incrementally more difficult. So it's having that situation awareness, it's testing your systems, and it's being prepared for the worst case scenario. I would, I would completely agree. A movement on foot in the jungle on a good day on your own is tricky. Uh, you, you look at those maps of the jungle and there's they're just full of contours and a single flat piece of ground. It's very difficult to walk. Um, so if you've got to, if you've got a stretcher casualty, that is an absolute epic. And I don't know how far you went in that six hour Kazi back area, but I bet it probably was only a couple of K. It is just enormously difficult and manpower resource. Um, and remember all, all snake bites are technically a stretcher, a stretcher case. So um, yeah, it's not, an easy option at all carrying someone in a stretcher around the jungle environment and people will fall and injure themselves whilst being a stretcher bearer so yeah not not something to do that i would relish doing and when we have had to do it to just casavac someone from a to b maybe to get them to a winch hole um yeah you remember that what do you do for analgesia for those patients it's really tricky, actually. It's a great question, Claire. So um, a, a really useful adjunct I've used, and I'd be interested to hear what Matt thinks, but is uh, Penthrox. So methoxyfluorine is a lovely, uh, nimble drug in these in these environments. So Penthrox is a little green whistle. Um, you can get people to sort of sub-anesthetic doses if they take the Penthrox correctly. Um, and so, uh, and you can actually even put your finger over the hole and include the hole and double the strength. Um, it's quick onset, quick offset. Um, but the, the problem with extended Kazivax is the sort of longevity of pain management, really. So it's having mm. probably multiple modalities which are going to last over time. So it wouldn't just be reliant on one modality like Penthrox, it might be reliant just oral meds supplemented sort of maybe the paracetamol ibuprofen supplemented with penthrox um if, if you have to go down the iv route then i'd be a lot more careful because 
your access to monitoring is 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 very limited but it's 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 a multimodal approach uh, it's a sparing approach especially if it's yeah you're talking six six to eight to ten hours down the line you've got to be quite sparing and think ahead um, a lot more i agree and i guess the fluffy gp in me would say it's you know the answer to all pain questions is always the three p's isn't it is the the pharmacological which owns covered well then the, the psychological the uh, psychological and the, the physical so you tell someone this is going to be difficult this is going to hurt and you try and encourage them through it as you're banging them around with their broken limb on the stretcher um so there is a, a, a psychological element and then it's that physical element of it's splintage your kendrick splint or whatever you've got icoplaster of paris uh, a few mm-hmm. you know good old-fashioned uh, plaster, a few rolls of plaster and a bit of soft band to go underneath it and I've managed many, many an ext- extremity fracture and an ankle and actually put a plaster on in the jungle to uh, mm. to stop the physical movement so yeah, the, the, the three P's is always a good answer, yeah and, lot, lot, and I, I agree with them, lots of pharmacological options as many as you can carry really but again you are carrying your own kit um, and you remember as the medic you're carrying your personal kit, your own survival clothes, whatever, plus the med pack um, so you are likely to be quite lightly scaled in what, what you are able to take. So yeah, analgesia is, uh, we could probably have a whole session on that alone. <laughs> yeah, we probably could. Let's do we'll that. come back to that one. <laughs> uh, what about nerve blocks? No, perhaps that's a bit technical. I think, I guess it depends on the level of, of the clinician. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, consciousness is going to a mixed audience. If it's in your skill set, absolutely. And femoral nerve blocks, mm-hmm. um, you're, you're fa- fantastic fantastically effective and actually once you've done a few um, are, are really quite simple uh, mm. in the bigger scheme of things is something you, that could be done um, but I guess it depends on the on the skill set of the individual and it's probably not something you'd ever be wanting to, to do for the first time in that environment but it's certainly an option yeah, sure. cool thank you so much that's really really interesting to think about the challenges it, it's a you know pretty awe-inspiring feat to think that anybody ever manages to go uh, after we've sat here and talked about this for a bit I think the, the other Kazivak angle is really if if you are having a, a helicopter um, and you've got a helicopter Kazivak, uh, so there are numerous issues. Is if you fly over the jungle, you quite quickly see you can't land anywhere or very very few places. There may be a few uh, HLSs that have been pre-established, but it's not going to be where you want it, um, which means winching, uh, which is. Uh, a tricky old thing. So to start with, the helicopter's got to find you mm. um, and you can give them a GPS if you've got GPS and I suggest you have two or three GPS and GPS won't always work through the thickness of the jungle canopy. So you might have to get someone into a clearing to get a really good fix on where you are. Um, but actually how that pilot finds you when they're just flying over what looks like a, you know, lots of broccoli underneath you, how, where, where's the casualty? So we said in the military have these air marker balloons which is essentially like a like a party balloon, a small bo- bottle of helium in it, and it's blue and pink on a long, long string. And you find the beast clearing you've got, and you put your balloon up. And when the pilots are coming in, certainly the daytime, obviously, you can see because it stands a bright um, sort of metallic pink balloon stands out in that environment, uh, and the and the pilot can sort of like hone in you quite quickly. So it, it can be difficult, um, and the. To get, um, so you're, they all being well, but someone will winch down to you, uh, but you really need quite a big space uh, to, you know, to get them in. You need quite a big winch hole. And there are some natural clearings. Hopefully there's one close to you, but cutting a winch hole, people sort of often talk about quite glibly, oh, we just cut ourselves a winch hole. Again, that's half a day's work for a team of people. Uh, it's, a, it's an epic job and you really you need chainsaws. Um, to do it with any degree of speed so yeah you know sometimes certainly where we tend in the military tend to know where we're working so we'll have pre-positioned pre-cut winch holes which are identified where the pilots know sort of you know they're numbered or lettered so you know get a you know winch hole a and we can meet them there Uh, but yeah cutting one on your own is a is a, a big thing um they'll tend to drop a basket down you load the cash to your package them and go up but when they go up they spin and it's not at all uncommon to bounce off the trees on the way up. And we've certainly had, you know, there's been cases, reported cases of people getting injured, um, you know, head injuries if they weren't correctly packaged you know, from a branch on the way back up to the helicopter. Uh, and, a, and a final one to perhaps think about is deadfall. 
So deadfall is when um, high up in the jungle canopy, a branch has fallen or a tree has fallen and is rotten and is sat there poised, ready to fall on you. And some of these logs are absolutely enormous. And if all of a sudden you bring a helicopter in, that will dislodge everything in the canopy above and come crashing down. And there are, you know, it's quite, you know, there's lots of reported cases of deaths and significant injury from deadfall um, triggered triggered by helicopters. So, yeah, I think it's, as a start, Kazimak is uh, not something to be undertaken lightly nor wantonly. And you really you know, need to be careful about, you know, when you call a helicopter in because you, you could do more harm than good. So uh, clearly, if you need to cast back someone, they need to go. But it needs to be, yeah, thought about and planned and uh, and certainly rehearsed, as Owen said. Thanks, Matt. It's a really useful uh, and thought-provoking uh, summary of the challenges that can be faced. Can I just mention one or two other things that sort of link into that? Really, one is the comms. Oh. And I, I mentioned comms. Um, it it can be difficult to communicate. Uh, mobile phones aren't going to work. Um, so it's all it's all satellite comms, and again, you you sometimes struggle to get a signal bouncing through the tree canopy because it's so thick. So sending someone out, you know, so you, you can end up having you know comms dif- difficulties just getting your sat phones to work. Um, so and as you know, as, as I said before, yeah, you always on backup comms and backup plans, but it's not as straightforward as you think just to use the sat comms in that environment. And I think the other one is navigation. Um, jungle navigation is an expert skill. Um, it is, uh, the, there's clearly there's very few reference points. It's incredibly easy to get disorientated. A good friend of mine wandered off, actually saw a butterfly, big refugee toughy soldier, beautiful butterfly, chased it for sort of 10, 15 meters, trying to get a picture of it, turned around, realized it very quickly got very lost. All trees look the same. And he was disorientated and lost for quite a significant time until he, by luck, he managed to get himself back. So it's um, a lot of it, it's, um, the mapping is often very poor. So you really want someone who is an expert in jungle, jungle navigation uh, to be guiding you through the jungle. Uh, a lot of it is about pacing. So you, so you can uh, uh, calculate how far you've walked because it's deceptive and your pacing changes uphill and downhill. Uh, there's a tendency to walk along ridge lines because it's easier, um, but I say they're often poorly mapped, and it, it, it's it's a challenge, and it's uh, a lot of strong compass work as well. So not again, not something for the um, for the amateur to go in and think they can navigate around the jungle. It's it's very difficult, even with GPS. Yeah, I would agree with Matt, actually. And I'd, I'd say that, you know, VHF radios fail a lot of times. So because any big land masses, um, especially as the train's undulating, will will stop VHF uh, radios transmitting to each other. And But you, but, but as we were saying before, you have to plan for that. So uh, And plan for the fact that you may not get um, sat phone um, in triple canopy, as, as Matt was saying. So it, it's tricky. It really is tricky. And, you know, you, you're, you're down to your plan C or your plan D, which might be an in-reach by Garmin or another kind of device, which is which is sort of a, a, a sat-nav um, GPS system. And, and, and so you're, you really have to have multiple modalities because I think some of the take-homes, as Matt was saying, is everything fails in the jungle and it is the ultimate testing ground. It's the ultimate testing ground of your situation awareness, of your map reading skills, of your ability to communicate, of your preparedness, so your, your, your primary and your secondary and tertiary plan. Um, and and also indeed your your clinical acumen because everything is impaired. You've got less access to to monitoring, less as- access to diagnostics. Um, things get masked. Um, the prevailing sort of heat illness uh, gets mixed in with the endemic disease. So you really have to, you know, re- it really does test everything about you, both from a from a clinical perspective, but just also from a personal perspective. Your own, as 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 we were just saying, your your own personal admin. And there's nothing worse or more embarrassing than coming down with an illness yourself because of poor personal admin in front of a team when you were responsible for the healthcare of the team. So good admin around your foot care, uh, around your hydration, around uh, your solar radiation, so not getting burnt skin, uh, making sure that you're not coming down with with any of these uh, diseases so that you can take care of other people. 
it sounds like we've painted quite a negative picture of all this, really. <laughs> not the intent. It's actually fantastic, beautiful, exhilarating, challenging and wonderful places to be for those that like it. And it's not for everyone. It's actually quite claustrophobic and it's very noisy, particularly at night. So some people just don't get on with it. But I think those that do, and I, I you know, it's recreational. I love being back in the jungle. So uh, I, I would encourage our, our listenership to uh, not be too disheartened by uh, what we've said, but take it as, uh, as, as wise words of planning, um, but still take the opportunity to go. But I think my, my one top tip, and I guess take home would be, um, it's not being in charge of a medical, medically in charge of a jungle expedition, uh, having never done it before is, is not a thing to do. I would always recommend go with someone else who's experienced and learn from them and then you know before you're in charge yourself so don't be naive to the jungle on your first time that you're the sole medic there uh, because th- there is a lot to learn and by the time you do trip two you realized how much you learn on trip one. Oh, thanks, Faith. That's a really lovely like wrap up there. And what I'll do is I'll get you to send me some of your holiday snaps uh, so we can share those on our blog post if we may because um I'd certainly love to see the attractive bits of the jungle as well as hear about the dangerous bits. But you've done a lovely uh, job of sharing your thoughts with us. So thank you so much for your time. It's much appreciated. Absolute pleasure. Happy to help. Thanks, Thanks, Claire. Thank you.